0: Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for March 28, 2022. Here's today's rundown. There's a new audit trap called technical denials. Marvin Mitchell in Banning, California, just east of Los Angeles has our lead story. Criminal investigators at the IRS report finding $1.8 billion worth of fraudulent loans, credits, payments, and other schemes. It affects 660 cases involving money meant for workers, families, and small businesses for dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll have that story. A $1.5 trillion funding bill signed into law earlier this month had $15 billion in COVID-19 spending stripped out. Now, Utah Republican Senator Mitt Romney says his party is close to offering a counterproposal to the Democrats. Kate Brantley has today's legislative update. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, health care attorney David Glazer, health care attorney Nicole Emanuel, and Linell James with news on the social determinants of health. Now, here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report, and we begin this morning, as we always do, with Dr. Ronald Hirsch. He's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday.
0: Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning,
2: all. The COVID pandemic is going to be studied for years to come. Psychologists will need years and years to figure out how people could be convinced that a vaccine dispensed from a multi-dose vial through a tiny needle could possibly contain a tracking chip in every dose. Supply chain professionals will be using the shortages that occurred at the onset of the pandemic to determine how to better be prepared when and if the next one hits. And medical professionals will have an abundance of data to study. Many are also interested in studying the collateral effects of the near breakdown of our medical system, and we're starting to see data on what many of us feared, the delayed diagnosis of potentially curable diseases. As you can see on this graph, the percentage of patients presenting with later stage breast cancer increased tremendously from 2019 to 2021 during the pandemic. Now, this is data from only one hospital, but still quite ominous. Missed mammograms, delayed evaluation of palpable abnormalities. As time goes by, I expect to see similar data for other cancers. So please encourage your patients, your family, and your friends to get the screening tests that they delayed. Moving on, I believe I've discussed code 44 versus self-denial in the past, but I got into another discussion about it recently. Yes, doing a condition code 44 change to outpatient is a pain, lots of moving parts, And simply marking a case for post-discharge self-denial and rebuild is a heck of a lot easier but whose decision is it to decide which one should be preferred well in the case i discussed with this hospital it was a unilateral decision by the ur team to not do code 44s the physician advisor didn't want to be bothered and the ur staff had too many other tasks but what if the finance team was asked to provide input Which would they choose, the option that allows them to prepare and submit one outpatient Part B claim and get paid in a few weeks, or the one that requires three claims to be produced and delays payment for a couple of months? Do we want to tell a patient in person that their status has changed and they probably owe less money and be available to answer questions, or should we wait and send them a letter where they have to decipher all the technical jargon about Part A and Part B, inpatient and outpatient, and then... Call the hospital to try and find someone to answer their questions. Now, maybe your facility chooses the self-denial route. That's fine, as long as it was an informed decision weighing the costs and benefits of each method, and all parties that were involved had an opportunity to provide input. Finally, I'm sure everyone heard about the Vanderbilt nurse who was found guilty of criminally negligent homicide for a medication error. This unjust verdict will have a very chilling effect in all of our hospitals, with providers of all types thinking twice about reporting errors, as this nurse promptly did. As if the harassment of healthcare workers faced during COVID wasn't enough, now we have a chance of being charged with crimes. It's really a sad time for healthcare for all of us. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Dr.
1: Hirsch is the vice president of R1RCM. He was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole.
3: Hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. It's hard enough to be one of the providers to accept Medicare and Medicaid, the regulatory oversight is burdensome. You're always getting metaphorically yelled at for upcoding or bundling. One of the most absolute, most draconian penalty is against a Medicare or Medicaid provider is prepayment review. Prepayment review is exactly as it sounds. Before you receive payment for services rendered, an auditor reviews your claims to determine whether you should be reimbursed prepayment review is the epitome of you're guilty until proven innocent. It flies in the face of American due process. However, no one has really legally thought its constitutionality. Yet many provider companies haven't put out of business by it. Generally, to get off prepayment review, you have to achieve a 75 or 80% success rate for three consecutive months. It doesn't sound hard, until you put in the fact that your auditors or graders fail to do their job correctly and fail you erroneously. Usually, when a provider is placed on prepayment review, I say, well, you can't appeal being placed on prepayment review, but we can get a preliminary injunction to say the withholding of reimbursements during the process. It tends to work. Most state statutes have language like this. The decision to place or maintain a provider on prepayment review does not constitute a contested case. A provider may not appeal or otherwise contest a decision of the department to place a provider on prepayment review. Well, a recent case in North Carolina called Halakiera Community Services LLC versus North Carolina DHHS The provider disputed being placed on prepayment review and accused DHHS of a malicious campaign against it. Holly Kiera was the largest in home Medicaid healthcare provider, and it alleged that two specific individuals at DHHS, quote unquote, personally detested Holly Kiera because of its size. According to the opinion, these two DHHS employees schemed to get Holly Kiera on pre rebuke by accusing it of employing felons, which is not illegal. Holly Kiera sued based on substantive due process and equal protection rights, but not, being, not before being forced to terminate its 600 employees and closing its doors. It also asserted a claim of conspiracy and restraint of trade against the individual DHHS employees. The court held that, quote, the mere fact that an agency action is non-reviewable under the Administrative Procedure Act does not shield it from judicial review. The upset? Even if a statute states you can't appeal it, maybe you can. Back to you,
1: Doug. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm, a practice. And coming up at about uh, nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Kate Brantley, David Glazer, Lanelle James, and Marvin Mitchell, who's standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, March 28th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by.
0: The American College of Physician Advisors National Conference in Austin, Texas is April 11th through the 13th at the Hyatt Regency. This event will equip new and existing physician advisors, leaders in case management and clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle professionals, C-suite leaders, and others with novel approaches to navigate their unique healthcare systems during unprecedented times. This conference is the go-to event for physician advisors at all stages of their careers. Scheduled speakers include nationally recognized authorities involved in regulatory affairs and medical necessity screening procedures. Click on the ad on the Rack Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to register.
1: Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is Healthcare Attorney David Glazer. David, as I say every Monday at this time, what could be risky today?
4: Well, Chuck, it's the risk of taking you can't do shared visits in the clinic too literally. As part of the 2022 Medicare Physician Fee Schedule, CMS implemented a new regulation setting out the requirements for shared visits. For more information about the policy in general, you can watch the webinar I did in January in the RAC Monitor web store. Now, I've seen countless sources state that you can't bill for shared visits in a clinic. That statement is literally true, but terribly misleading. This is the quintessential example of the importance of definition and word choice. So the relevant regulation, which is 42 CFR 415.140, defines a split or shared visit as an evaluation and management visit in the facility setting that's performed in part by both a physician and a non-physician practitioner who are in the same group in accordance with applicable law and regulations such that the service could be billed by either the physician or the non-physician practitioner if furnished independently by only one of them. So under the regulation, a facility is an institutional setting where payment for services and supplies, uh, furnished Incident 2, are prohibited by the Incident 2 regulation. So, CMS is defining a shared visit as something that happens only in basically a hospital or a nursing home, not in a clinic. Because of the very specific limitation, it's entirely accurate to say you can't do a shared visit in a clinic. A freestanding clinic is not a facility. No, a hospital based clinic is, but a freestanding clinic site of service 11 isn't a facility. So, if something happens in a clinic, by the service 11, Medicare won't call it a shared visit. But as soon as someone says you can't do a shared visit in a clinic, most people hear the idea that a visit where part of the service is performed by a physician and part by a non-physician can't be billed in a clinic, and that is 100% wrong. So let me make it a positive declaration. It's possible for a physician and a non-physician practitioner to jointly see the patient in a clinic and bill for the service under the physician's name and number. That's done using the Incident 2 rules and has been permissible at least as long as I've been a healthcare lawyer, which, I hate to admit, is like three decades. Now, note that the Incident 2 regulation allows a professional to both diagnose and treat a patient under the physician's direction, as long as the physician has established the course of treatment. If the physician and non-physician practitioner both see the patient during an encounter, the Incident 2 regulation allows the physician to bill. Now, remember that the Incident 2 regulation allows the physician to bill for services by auxiliary personnel. Back in 2001, CMS explained that they deliberately used the term any individual in that definition. And so they, they went on to say that the practitioner can use anyone, including or ranging from another physician to a medical assistant. That's a question we get periodically, can one physician bill incident to another, and the answer is yes. And we know that from the fee schedule that appeared in November 1st, 2001 in the Federal Register, in particular at page (laughs) 55,268. That's a lot of pages. The bottom line is that I totally understand how people get confused about it, but I'm 100% certain that Medicare policy permits a physician to bill for services done by an NPP during the same visit that the physician sees the patient in the clinic. Chuck, the bottom line is that for HR reasons, you don't want NPPs and physicians to follow the advice of Dr. Hook in The Medicine Show and be sharing the night together. But in the clinic, it's perfectly acceptable for the MD to say, if you don't mind...
0: Can I sit down here beside you? Ah, yeah. Ah, yeah. All right. All right.
4: And bill for the work done by the non-physician practitioner. You can be sharing the visit together. Just call it Infinite 2. Back to you.
1: (laughs) Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Frederick and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Sitting in today for Tiffany Ferguson, who usually reports on the social determinants of health, is Linnell James. Good morning, Linnell. And uh, what do we need
5: to know today about the social determinants of health? good morning, everybody. wanted to really talk about the reality of collaboration as part of the, one of the key ways social terms of health to improve healthcare outcomes is going to happen. want to talk about some of the key people that are involved in organizations, give you a sense of the direction the feds are going, and give you a sense of some of the amazing activities that are out in the field. Uh, I'd start by reminding people I've got an interesting article that, that Chuck encouraged me to write for ICD-10 Monitor. Collaboration is key to a address social determinants of health. So as I go through some of the acronyms, you'll be able to get some follow-up there. Uh, Let me start with the White House. Uh, The Office of Science and Technology Policy issued in January a request for information, strengthening community health through technology as just one example of some of the interest in this area, and shifting to some other related federal agencies that are very actively involved. uh, CDC, through their National Center for Chronic Disease Prevention and Health Promotion, they have 42 pilots going through the country looking at social terms of health to improve outcomes. And then you can shift to HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration. They've got two internal bureaus, the Office of Health Equity and Maternal Health and Child Health Bureau, active in six cities with $1.8 million as a five-year program to improve outcomes. And it's not just the feds looking at the quality measures. NCQA has a health equity accreditation now. And then some of you will remember from that 1991 HIPAA law, WEEDI, Work Group for Electronic Data Interchange that was established by Secretary Lewis uh, Sullivan for that HIPAA law. It includes the Weedy excuse me, the Weedy organization has been active in the last six months doing several national webinars talking about health equity and the importance of social determinants of health. So that's just an example of what the feds are doing. But let's talk about standards and technology that are also playing a really important part of that. Uh, and, and Congress has gotten into it. Uh, in their 2022 Labor, Health, and Human Services and Education Appropriations Report, They are planning to put $5 billion of funding to develop, quote, fast healthcare interoperable resources standard to improve interoperability and information sharing. Uh, For those of you to, to kind of connect the dots back to where this technology relates to improving health care and also coding, uh, look at the NCPDP script standard, which has been documented across the uh, uh, 95% of the pharmacies, 88,000 in the country. They've reduced medication errors by 55%, saving $1.8 billion using technology and standards. So just giving you a sense of the kind of ways these standards and technology can be active with social determinants of health. For this audience, as part of the technology, we're looking at ICD-10, Z-codes, SNOMED, as this audience would know, and hopefully LOINC codes. Uh, LOINC meaning meaning, uh, logical uh, interoperability, logical observation names and codes as a 1994 standard out of Reagan Street in Indianapolis, documenting ontology, making sure EMRs are consistent, All of these pieces together are providing that collaborative infrastructure where we can now tackle social determinants of health using ICD-10 Z codes and SNOMED as part of communicating observations and things people should be doing to improve outcomes focused on social determinants of health. Chuck, back to you.
1: Thanks, Linnell, very much. That was Linnell James, health information and innovation lead for Blue Cross Blue Shield Association. And in that role, he supports the association's health equity data strategy.
0: Thanks again, Linnell.
1: Up next, Kate Brantley with the Monitor Monday legislative update.
0: The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading, provider-focused electronic healthcare care payments technology company. Zellis delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Kate Brantley.
6: Thank you, Chuck. Good morning. Since HIPAA was passed and signed in 1996, a national provider identifier and many of the law's transaction and code set standards have been successfully implemented and in use for years. However, efforts to implement another type of identifier found in the Act, a national patient identifier, have continued to be frustrated by Congress blocking any funding from being put towards development of this patient identifier. For the last two and a half decades, Section 510 of the Labor HHS Appropriations Bill has been a longstanding ban prohibiting the use of federal funds in developing a patient identifier. However, for the better half of a year now, it was looking like this ban might finally be over as the House's version and Senate's draft version of this year's Appropriations Bill saw this section removed. Additionally, removal received support from both sides of the aisle in Congress. In spite of this, when Congress recently passed the final version of the latest Labor HHS bill, Section 510 remains fully intact, meaning that the patient identifier is blocked for another year. This ensures that the debate will continue between those that believe the ban is outdated and those who think it is needed to protect patient privacy. The Section 510 ban on funding for a national patient identifier was initially introduced in 1998 by former Congressman Ron Paul. Continuing the family tradition, His son, Senator Rand Paul, remains passionate about prohibiting the development of any national patient identifier. Citing doctor patient trust and privacy, Senator Paul worries both about having intimate personal information centralized by the government, as well as the potential for security breaches. In a 2021 letter to the Senate Committee on Appropriations, Senator Paul expressed his worry about a cradle-to-grave tracking system for private medical history of Americans and cited recent attacks by hackers and cyber terrorists. Although Senator Paul has not yet again filed his National Patient Identifier Repeal Act after it failed to move forward in 2019, his continued advocacy has proved to be an effective factor in the repeated renewal of the Section 510 ban. In contrast, Many healthcare and health IT groups believe that developing a national patient identifier is a key way to innovate the healthcare industry and prevent potentially deadly misidentification and medical errors. While many amongst these groups acknowledge that the Section 510 ban perhaps made sense back in the day of paper medical records, they believe that in the digital era, the only purpose it serves is to hinder both patient safety and progress in the healthcare industry. Advocates say that the need for a national strategy on identifying patients has never been stronger than in times of COVID. They spoke to issues reported during the pandemic with COVID test results and records being matched to the wrong patient, hindering both public health efforts to combat the pandemic as well as individual health outcomes for the patients involved who might not have fully accurate medical records going forward. Outside of the pandemic, a previous ONC study found that seven out of every hundred patient records are mismatched, and within healthcare entities, error rate is typically close to 20%. That number dramatically increases when looking at healthcare entities that exchange information with each other. Advocates believe that this disproportionately affects underserved and minority populations, as they are more likely to suffer from chronic illnesses that can lead to delayed treatment if their information is matched to the wrong patient. Advocates also suggest that this decreases potential innovation in healthcare by increasing both administrative burdens and costs to the system. So, Chuck, in spite of several signs we were seeing in the last few months that it might finally be patient identifiers' time to shine, the Section 510 ban remains in place for another year. There's little indication, however, that either side intends to give up their fight, so we expect to see this debate continue into the foreseeable future. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Kate, very much. That was Kate Brantley, legislative analyst for Zealous Healthcare. And coming up next, an emerging audit trap called Technical Denials. That story is next. This is Monitor Monday. Standby.
0: Too many regulatory changes. Too many auditors. Too many instances where, if you're not up to date, it could cost your facility an audit. These are tough times for providers and the outlook on the audit landscape is frightening. But help is here, now more than ever. This is the time and Rack Monitor is the place to get on board with a Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast subscription. In this fast-paced regulatory environment, your team will benefit from the latest compliance and regulatory educational topics from the industry's most respected source of compliance and auditing news and education, Rack Monitor. The Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast series will ensure that your team remains compliant while avoiding audits and take-backs. Subscribe now at the Rack University Bookstore. There's an emerging new audit
1: trap called technical denials. Here now to explain this new audit trap and how you can avoid being trapped is Marvin Mitchell. Good morning, Marvin. Good morning. Thank you, Chuck. We all have faced many
7: times medical necessity denials, and most of us have learned how to overcome those, but insurers have another tool in their box, so-called technical or administrative denials, based on real or ima- um, excuse me, real or alleged provider lapses in a prior authorization process. Now these can be hard, even impossible to overcome. Technical denials can range from the benign, you know, simple miscommunication, easily remedied. To the annoying and usually deserved denial based on a hospital 's error in the prior authorization process with, that has no margin for error to the insidious where technical denials are part of a payer 's business model now in california uh, we 're heavy on capitation uh, Excuse me uh, we 're heavy on capitation with medical groups. One non-contracted medical group's members were showing up on our ED in in numbers needing admission. Unable to get a response from the medical group after hours uh, led to these patients being admitted and the medical group becoming liable for the bills not covered under capitation. Further, the medical group seldom uh, made efforts to repatriate after the admission. Now, the medical group's solution to this red ink was to issue technical denials for failure to repatriate. Medical group CFO further argued that with a senior plan, we could not bill uh, if Medicare would not have paid. Technical denials were clearly his business model, a fact he did not dispute, but he messed up. Medical necessity was not actually in controversy. While he thought he had us on a failure to get authorization or cooperate with repatriation, he forgot a small detail, the medical group's regulatory obligation to timely respond to requests for authorization. According to the Medicare Managed Care Manual, Chapter 4, Subsection 20.5, Advantage Plans must respond to permission to admit requests within tight timeframes the clock starts ticking the moment the hospital makes this request. If the hospital is out of network, the payer must timely arrange repatriation to a network facility or authorize admission. Failure of the health plan to do so can create a de facto permission to admit. Now, in California, the, the same applies to commercial plans. If the hospital admits prior to receiving authorization, the technical denials will stick. But here's... Further on my encounter with the insidious, as it turns out, there were no innocent parties. Requests to provide post-stabilization care were missed. More frequently, the medical group didn't respond or act timely. They never tried to initiate repatriation after admission. Now, we reviewed the claims one by one. If we failed to follow, uh, we took the loss. The rest we fought. Now, long-term solution was simple. Everybody agreed to pay, play by the rules. We called, they answered, physician-to-physician chats, uh, and then uh, we made decisions from there, and we documented every step of the way. Now, if you you want more information, I refer you to the Managed Care Manual, Chapter 4, Subsection 20.5.
1: Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Marvin. That was Marvin Mitchell. Marvin is the Director of Case Management and Social Services at San Dagonia Memorial Hospital in Vann, California. That's just east of Los Angeles. Marvin is also a member of the RAC Monitor Editorial Board. David, let's take a look at some of the questions that
4: are coming in. You bet. we got a pair of pretty good ones, a really good ones, actually. So the first one, is why isn't the hospital liable for her having access to the anesthesia drug? We never had access to those types of drugs. And I guess the short answer is the hospital could also be liable, but, but the way liability works is the fact that there might be more than one party liable. That doesn't get you off the hook, right? So if, if I get, you know, if I'm selling someone fentanyl or uh, some drug that's laced with fentanyl, Um, and someone dies in the OD, I can be responsible and the other person is also responsible. Now, I'm not saying that they should in this case. I'm with Ron. I can't believe this was a terrible use of prosecutorial discretion, at least from what I understand the facts. I don't get it, but that's part of what's going on. As for the shared visit question, so we got a good one from Barbara, which is, uh, A, can you repeat the regulation? And uh, I will do that in just a jiffy here. I'm going to be talking more about this whole topic next week including why um, if you have a shared visit inside of Service 11 where it's not clear who did what, you can still bill it as Incident 2. But the regulation, again, is 415.140. So tune in next week where I criticize NGS for it was something that they've now fixed, but for a really bad Q&A that they had out earlier this year. Uh, That feels very Sesame Street in, but tune in next week, and Chuck, I'll turn it back to you.
1: Thanks, David, very much, and that is going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday, and I want to thank you very much for being with us today, and a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Kate Brantley, who was sitting in today for Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, whom you just heard, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Marvin Mitchell, and Linnell James, who was sitting in today for Tiffany Ferguson. And now, before we go, remember, you can listen to all the Monitor broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify. And Google Play. And when you do, give us a review. Rate us. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Goodbye, everybody. Have a great week.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.